But in all of the journalism I've done, it is this one type of allegation that, for obviously very good reasons, people don't want to come forward about. And, you know, if it's a, a drug trafficking, uh, financial crime, uh, government wrongdoing, the people eventually will come forward and, mm. and you know, tell me the allegation. And this is the one that... This is the one that it doesn't happen in, and I, and I think that that is what the perpetrators are counting on. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And I'm Julie McFarland, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Uh, this week, we um, this was kind of a hastily assembled episode mm, because mm. Julie and I decided that we wanted to do something responding to the Harvey Weinstein um, scandal. Right. I guess you can call it a scandal. Doesn't seem like a strong enough word to me. Um, so. Julie, you've had a conversation with Kevin Donovan, who our Canadian listeners will probably recognize as the journalist who broke the story about Gian Gomeshi a few years ago in 2014. Right. Uh, Kevin is the editor of the Toronto Star. Uh, the Toronto Star was uh, the place that the story was broken. And I th wanted to talk to Kevin about how the press handles the kinds of allegations that it heard in the Gomeshi case um, and other allegations about sexual violence and sexual misconduct. If you like, what the role of the press is uh, when it comes to outing sexual predators. And it was a fascinating conversation. And we've called this episode Weinstein and Gomeshi, Outing Sexual Predators. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Julie. Hi, thanks for taking this. Appreciate it. Of course. This. Kevin, you did a lot of investigative reporting at the Star on the Young Gameshi CBC, shall we say, saga. And, of course, you've written a book about the whole affair. Can you say what, what feels familiar to you about the Harvey Weinstein story that's been all over the press for the last two weeks? Well, one of the things that first uh, struck me was soon that story broke is there was a line in... Uh, in one of the New York papers where uh, people were quoted, uh, journalists were quoted saying, you know, we had heard about this, but the information we received uh, did not reach the test that we required to be able to publish something. And, and they were mm. referring to it as being rumors. Uh, that, that's number one. Number two, here you have a powerful person like John Gomeshi, Within the sort of in the you know the media entertainment world and yep. uh, and people are keeping quiet because they don't uh, one they don't think anybody would believe them uh, yes. and, and two in many cases more more in the case of Weinstein than, than Gomeshi they were worried about their career uh, because they were working directly you know with him as, as actors I'm and uh, yeah yeah and and. Uh, so it was, uh, I mean, there's elements uh, of, you know, Bill Cosby, that investigation which came out around the same time as Gomeshi, and it all uh, is very sadly familiar. And you, you said, Kevin, that there was this issue about whether or not any of this could have come to light earlier, that it was at the level of rumor, that it didn't satisfy a test. 
which is always somewhat vague what that test is. And so as a publisher, when you were first receiving what you might also describe as rumors about Young Gameshi, um, you know, what, what were the barriers to you publishing those? I came to the investigation cold, so I didn't have any, any pre-existing belief that he was doing this. So I'm, right. I'm looking at this as person X is alleged to have, uh, have sexually assaulted, choked, uh, women. And so, there were two uh, initial uh, women that we spoke to, and uh, we did not speak with them on the record. They were not uh, allowing us to, to name them, to give their age, to say even what city they were in, uh, or and perhaps most importantly, they would not let us ascribe to the alleged perpetrator what was done to them beyond just a general description of choked or, or uh, uh, sexually assaulted. And that puts us in a very difficult position because under Canadian law, certainly bolstered by the Responsible Communication Defense uh, Supreme Court now quite a few years old, yep. we have to tell the other side what they are alleged to have done so that they can give a response. And, and we so you needed to be able to, to put to Gameshi what they were saying and to give more detail than a choking allegation? Yeah, because if, let, let's imagine person X who, who is completely innocent, and, and we are told that person X is doing some uh, nefarious deeds, to just write that without being able to, to say what the person did, is it's really not fair to the other side, and that's in the scenario that the person is completely innocent. So in this case with, with Gameshi, we have to approach it as if uh, he is innocent, just as the criminal justice system would. And then we start trying to see if we can prove it. And so with Gameshi, what, what I spent the time doing the summer before we published was trying to figure out, was there any proof? Were there any emails? Was there, uh, were there any contemporaneous notes of any kind or, or discussions with perhaps friends of the, the original women that would verify their account? Uh, I don't believe that just because somebody says something, we must believe it. That is not right. That's that's the wrong way to do to do journalism. And so, right, but this is a matter of degree, isn't it? I mean, it's a matter of just how much "quote unquote" proof you need. Right, but but in a situation where it's partner, an allegation of partner and partner violence, mm. if a person just because uh, two people come forward and say this happened to me does not make it, it so. And that, that's the big problem with prosecuting these cases, uh, as we see time and again in the court. It's not, this is not a fraud crime where there's a, a, a money trail. Uh, right, and there's, not, there's, there's no witnesses, exactly. Yeah, but there's, I suppose, there's no forensics. Right, but, but just to push you just a little bit more on this, Kevin, it is we, the standard of forensic proof that's required by a criminal court is not the same as, for example, what a university might require in order to uh, expel a student um, who has been allegedly sexually harassing or assaulting other students. And it's also not the same as the standard that a newspaper or a media source might necessarily use. I mean, you're not setting beyond reasonable doubt standards, are you, for the press? We're not, but... A person, typically, you have to have somebody coming forward and 
if not putting their name to the allegation, uh, and we understand in sexual violence cases that, that, that you know, normally we don't do that, but mm. at least being able to, so that I could say to Jean Gameshi, uh, this is alleged to have happened on this date. I'm going to make up a date, March 22nd, mm. and it happened at this uh, outside of this uh, uh, restaurant, and this is what happened. And we were not able to do that. And eventually we were, as we went yes. down the road on this thing, but we weren't able to do that. And I, I have, as a journalist, uh, on many occasions, had people lie to me. And, mm. and you know, knock on wood, those stories were never published, but I have had people tell me something and it being disproved. And it wasn't true. Right. No, I, I, I understand. I mean, I think that I just want to say that... Um, you know, I'm sure as well as I do, that less than 5% of allegations of sexual assault that are brought to the police, if you look in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, the figures are all the same, less than 5% are false. And, and that doesn't mean that everybody who brings an allegation to a newspaper is telling the truth, but I just think it's important to kind of put that in context because there is a very widespread belief that women make these stories up. And, and in a way, that kind of takes me to my next question, Kevin, which is about whether institutional systems, and I'm thinking systems um, that are large corporations or industries um, or universities or schools, do institutional systems protect predators, in your opinion? And if they do, what can we do about that? Uh, well, those are probably the two most important questions in this in discussion. Uh, mm. Yes, uh, institutions do uh, protect them. As we're learning uh, every day from more people in the Weinstein case, there's lots of people in the motion picture uh, yeah. and television world in, in the United States that knew about this. And, and now everybody's falling over themselves to say, oh, and this happened to me and this happened to me. Right. And, uh, and so that means that... And, tend to be uh, true that the, the institutions would have, have known about this because uh, it's been going on for so long. So they, they do, and they protect it because an institution doesn't want to be smeared. They don't want uh, uh, the motion picture industry to be uh, tarred in the eyes of the viewing public as a place that protects predators. So, mm-hmm. so they do, they circle uh, around and they, um, they they try and keep out, they keep out the, the press, they keep out Anybody who was raising this, perhaps if a, um, a victim came forward, they definitely do that. How do you change it? I, I think you only change it by continuing to shine a light. I don't think that mm-hmm. there, there's a way. We did this series around the time of Gameshi on uh, the Star, Toronto Star on on what was happening on university campuses. Yes, and yes. Our reporters, yeah. our reporters found out that there were almost no policies to deal with this, to even deal with it at the beginning of an allegation. There are no policies across the country. That's right. And so, and of course, all the universities knew that, except it takes stories in, in the press to get them to start moving forward. Uh, so it's obviously, it's a big problem. It happens in, in, uh, in the media. It happens in, in business. It happens in the entertainment industry. It happens, I think, in all uh, walks of life. It's, it's very unfortunate just natural that people will cover up everything. People cover up fraud, they cover up sexual assault. Yeah, and I mean, it's what you know, reflecting back on what you just said, it's interesting what the calculation is here between is it worth to be smeared 
with um, made-out allegations of sexual violence, or is it worse to be smeared with covering up allegations of sexual violence? And, right. and yeah. I almost feel like there's a calculation going on here. That's right, because I do not know a statistic for this, but there's certainly lots of, of uh, information of this kind that is, is covered up and never disclosed. I'll tell you that since the Weinstein story broke, I've had five different people approach me anonymously. They won't tell me who they are. From mm-hmm. I get ready for this, five completely different types of, uh, of work life in, mm-hmm. Canada, in Canada. Five different people who uh, are telling me that this happened. They won't even say who the, who the perpetrator is. They'll just say what type of work it is. And they'll say they were a victim. They're thinking about coming forward, and they're worried about the first thing, confidentiality. And yeah. so, so here I, in the middle of my, you know, I've, I've certainly moved on. It's been you know a year and a half since the Gomeshi book came out. Yeah. And now more people are saying you've got to go back and look at that, and that's good. I, but I, as a journalist, feel like I mean, tell me who the person is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you understand with the work that you've done and in particular the work that you did on the Gameshi case, why it is so frightening for people to come forward and identify both themselves and the other person. I, I do understand that, um, but... We need them they, to do it. They need to, they need to do it. They need yeah. to do it. And, yeah. and this is a... I'm going to walk right into a minefield here, but in all of the journalism I've done... I, it is this one type of allegation that, for obviously very good reasons, people don't want to come forward about. And, you know, if it's a drug trafficking, uh, financial crime, uh, government wrongdoing, the people eventually will come forward and, mm-hmm. and will tell me the allegation. And this is the one that, that, this is the one that it doesn't happen in. And I, and I think that that is what the perpetrators are counting on. And that's how they keep being protected. We do need people to come forward, and I understand why you feel you need a certain amount of information in order to put it in your paper. But um, I think one of the things that we've seen with Harvey Weinstein, as well as with Gameshi, is just how important the press is here for putting these things into the public domain. So just one last question, Kevin. Um, Last week, the Academy of Motion Pictures, otherwise known as the Oscars, um, announced that they were expelling Harvey Weinstein. And they said this. They said, the era of willful ignorance and shameful complicity in sexually predatory behavior and workplace harassment in our industry is over. Do you believe it? If they added the words, we hope, in front of that, I would believe it. Because I think they do hope. That's a ridiculous statement to make because that's just not the way the world goes. I mean, uh, there are still going to be predators out there who are still going to, to try and be kept, kept secret and using all sorts of means. I'm pretty sure that the, I think it was the New York Times, that uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they did the original story. There, those reporters for sure are getting tips on other other alleged Harvey Weinstein. Right. For sure they are. And so, so then, what are they? What are they going to do? Are they going to? They'll probably expose more, and they're going to have to keep doing that journalism to keep 
is in the public mind. I mean, nobody's talking about John Gameshi anymore. Uh, no. You know, no. Uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that people are not, you know, harkening back to that and, and saying, you know, how are things... Uh, uh, how are things going right now in, in all and what have we learned from it and and that was really why I wanted to talk to you today because I think that for people in Canada um you know we need to first of all face the fact that this is our culture as well as the US culture but also you know we should have learned a certain amount from young Gameshi um but perhaps what we've learned is that ultimately coming forward does not give people a real feeling of justice and and that's i think you know one of the other issues that we have to face well, here yeah and and uh i think sarah Pauly, a uh, canadian actor uh, and director she has a column in the toronto star today and i and she says towards the end that she's worried that this weinstein story will end up with a person on the witness stand being taken apart uh, right. by a lawyer right. and uh and i pretty sure that that's where the thing's going to go. Yes, it will, that's right. Something, there will be some sort of criminal investigation. And, uh, uh, you know, in the Gomeshi case, you know, kudos to the ones that came forward. That case could have been uh, prosecuted much, uh, uh, much, much more, more rigorously. Yes. yes. Kevin, thank you very much indeed for your time today. I really appreciate that. So... In light of how important news reporting has been for breaking this Harvey Weinstein story, uh, it's really interesting to think about how far the press can go in bringing previously hidden stories like this to the light. Mm. And um, Kevin talked about the need to know enough to Mm. be able to give the accused person a chance to respond, which is an interesting kind of bar. Um, so at the same time, this isn't the same as a forensic standard, um, which is what a court might require as proof of misconduct. So what do you think is the balance? Well, this is sort of the million dollar question, really. Uh, there is a defense, which Kevin mentioned, um, called the Re- responsible communication defense, which newspapers can use um, in order to protect themselves against possible uh, libel suits. And uh, that generally is is interpreted as going to the person against whom allegations have been made and putting the information to them and giving them a chance to respond. And, you know, Kevin talked about in the interview the ways in which they gather information to feel that they are confident that they have enough to put it to uh, the person in this case that he was talking about. Obviously, it was Jan Gameshi. Um, You know, I feel personally that having worked quite a lot with journalists to try to expose predators through the press, because what we have seen over and over again is that the press is critical in bringing these stories to light. Um, I think that hard as it is for a woman to go and tell her story to a journalist, it's still a lot easier than telling it to the police. Mm -hmm. And there are fewer barriers. And, you know, sometimes I, I confess I feel frustrated that there needs to be too much information, in particular too much corroboration, because, of course, we're talking about crimes of sexual violence that have no witnesses. But I think that Kevin, you know, to be fair, acknowledged that there must be some flexibility. Um, And, uh, 
you know, I think that at a time when it is so incredibly discouraging and difficult for women to go to the police, and in fact, especially in the light of the verdict in the Gomeshi trial when he was acquitted, I would really like it to be easier for women to be able to go to the press and feel confident to do so. And, you know, the Toronto Star has actually done some very good reporting in this. Around the same time, they ran a series on university sexual assaults, sexual assaults on campus that had a huge impact. So, you know, I would like us to find a way that the press can perhaps be seen as a bit more proactive mm -hmm. in encouraging people to come forward and, and certainly to be seen as safe for women who maybe aren't necessarily ready to go on the record right away because we need more places that people can bring these stories forward where they feel they're going to feel that they will be protected. So kind of related to that, Kevin refers to the fact that reporting on sexual violence is different from other kinds of kinds of journalism because the people who are coming forward are more fearful and reticent mm. than in other types of crimes like fraud or corruption or something like that. Um, and it's understandable given what tends to happen or what can happen when a woman comes forward in terms of being raked through a pretty judgmental mm -hmm. process. So how do you think we could make it more possible or at least a little less terrifying for women to come forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, interestingly, when he made that comment about how reporting on sexual violence is, is different from any other kind of journalism that he does, and he's a very experienced journalist, he kind of makes my point that sexual violence is different, and perhaps the norms on reporting sexual violence have to reflect that. You know, mm -hmm. albeit we have this responsible communication defense, you know, just how much graphic detail, for example, should a journalist ask a woman to give before presenting those allegations to the other side. And I think that, you know, this is, is, is especially clear when they're talking about an extremely traumatic event that has happened to them with some, some extremely personal dimensions to it. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that the press can help with is that, you know, we have a culture still that tends to normalize a lot of these behaviors, mm -hmm. perhaps not the more extreme behaviors, but certainly um, what I would call kind of grassroots sexual sexual harassment mm -hmm. that goes on. The so stuff that we're all kind of used to. Right. We're all kind of used to it yeah. and nobody, you know, unless you're considered to be hypersensitive, nobody does anything about it. You know, it was interesting listening to the two journalists who broke the story uh, in the New York Times about Harvey Weinstein, this was one of the things they talked about, how he was protected for years and years by a normalizing of his behavior. So I think that I think one of the things that the press can do is to report on this in a way that, that you know, is clear that this is not normal and acceptable behavior. That doesn't mean that they have to be polemical about it. It's really just more um, a, a, an attitude um, of reporting. And I think that that also means that when women consider coming forward, um, they will have greater confidence that they're not simply going to be told, oh, go away, that's not important. Mm -hmm. So you and Kevin discussed a little bit what makes systems so protective of sexual predators who often have been getting away with what they've been doing for mm. years and years before finally being reported on and stopped in some way or another. Um, I know that you've had 
a lot of experience working to get traditional institutions to confront this issue and actually act to remove a sexual predator. So what have you learned through those experiences? A lot. <laughs> um, first of all, just to just to set it out, um, I have been involved in my own lawsuit with the Anglican Church, and I'm now working with um, another person abused by a cleric um, in the Anglican Church. I spent 15 months uh, working in my own university at the University of Windsor um, to persuade the administration to remove a person who was a serial sexual harasser, a faculty member. And I've also been working for actually the last seven years with a school board, the Essex County School Board, um, around removing an abusive school teacher. And um, in both the case of the university and the school board, those people have now been removed. I think that what unfortunately is the reality of trying to work with institutions that ha that tend to be extraordinarily protective of people who are doing something that they really don't want to acknowledge and they believe they can keep kind of dismissing because in all of these cases um, at the at the university and at the school board there had been in particular at the school board, a tremendous number of complaints that have built up over time, and they've simply been brushed under the carpet. Mm -hmm. And there is always this um, sort of theme that until we know that, you know, the most extraordinarily abusive sexual violence has taken place, which basically would amount to rape, um, we can't do anything. There's, there's still a dismissal of other kinds of behaviours which are, frankly, just as abusive mm -hmm. and had, in both those cases, extraordinarily um, negative impacts on both law students and high school students. Um, just heartbreaking. So the first thing I'd say is that um, working with institutions to try to confront the issue takes an enormous amount of time. I... I used to joke with my uh, university president that if I'd had all the time back, I spent lobbying them on doing something about the serial sexual harasser. I could probably have written another book in that time. And, and I think he thought that was a joke, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the other thing I think one has to be prepared to do is to make oneself a really big nuisance. Um, I, you know, have lost count of how many times I've been told to shut up about allegations that are seen as not being um, forensically proven, uh, when what I'm really only uh, really asking in each case is that they are looked at seriously and there is, getting back to this point again about having people come forward, when an institution is told about allegations, it needs to be able to safely encourage people to come forward. And that's something that I see failure on over and over again. The best that these institutions tend to do is to have an internal investigation that's very secret. And what they really need to do is what the Toronto Star and other New York Times and others are doing, which is to actually make themselves a safe place for people to come forward. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think it's worth mentioning is that there is a very unfortunate um, theme in many of these cases where somebody gets removed from an institution, which is sometimes described as past the trash. And what that amounts to is that that person, the priest, 
the university teacher or the high school teacher simply goes somewhere else and pops up again, you know, mm -hmm. like that thing you see at the fun fair where you have a hammer. The whack-a-mole. Whack right, yeah. and they keep <laughs> popping up all over the place. Um, in the case of the faculty member who used to be um, in my faculty, uh, he's now teaching at the University of the West Indies, for example. So, you know, I think that those are some of the, the system challenges that we that we face and you know my advice for other people is that this can be done I mean I think we have to stay optimistic it can be done but it's a long hard struggle and it should not be this hard in related news don't forget to check out Kevin's book Secret Life about the Gian Gomeshi scandal as well, the Sarah Pauli editorial referenced by Kevin and Julie can be found on the Toronto Star website. In other news, last week, Quebec finally passed its long-anticipated law banning women from wearing burqa and niqab in public. The legislation has met with a lot of controversy, but unfortunately, Quebec now becomes the first state or province in North America to have such a law. The impact on women who choose to wear the burqa or niqab is likely to be that they will feel they cannot leave their homes, and certainly they will experience the ban as hostility expressed towards them. We will be discussing bans on clothing and restrictions on Muslims as an access to justice issue, as well as other ways in which Canadian Muslims navigate fear and ignorance in our culture. Look for that in our next episode. We're taking a break next week from the podcast. Dana, in fact, is going to be away presenting at an American Bar Association conference, and we cannot do this without Dana. So we'll be back the following Monday with Khalil Jessa, who will be my guest that week, and he will be talking about his experience as a student activist working on Islamophobia issues, and we're calling it Islamophobia in Our Backyard. See you then. <laughs>